Well, we continue in our study of 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> and uh, so far it has been a, a thoroughly challenging study. <laughs> you said we're very carefully. Uh, I've learned a lot. I hope that it's been very profitable for you. We get into a section now as we continue in spiritual gifts where we deal more specifically with the topic of tongues. And in reality, the entire chapter is about tongues and it would be impossible to go through this in a single setting. It's also not, in my, in my estimation, wise to go through this without a little bit more of an introduction into tongues. And so you will probably hear me say some, say some things you've heard before. You will likely hear me say some things that you have not heard yet, and then expanding upon other things that have just been alluded to over these seven, eight weeks as we began in chapter 12 and then into 13. So if you were to cherry-pick verses out of this chapter and possibly find a few verses in chapter 12 to cherry-pick as well, you might read this and think that Paul is simply giving a strong affirmation of the gift of tongues, that he is providing some instruction that will help them to be more fruitful and useful in how they experience tongues in their church. But if you read chapter 14, and remember the context of everything that Paul has said about the church in Corinth, beginning in chapter 1, and especially the section on chapter 13, or excuse me, chapter 12 as it relates to spiritual gifts, you will know that this is not the case. Paul is not simply affirming the usage of tongues. Paul is in the continual process of rebuking and correcting them over a myriad of problems. So the church at Corinth is a vivid picture of a carnal church which Paul is strongly rebuking and correcting for their carnality. Now this has surfaced in a number of ways. So this was a divisive church filled with great conflict. It was obsessed with worldly philosophy and worldly wisdom. It was immoral. The people were guilty of incest and visiting temple prostitutes. They were suing one another in civil court. They emphasized personal rights over the well-being of others. They celebrated their alleged spiritual maturity over others by being single and celibate. Or by being married, they couldn't agree which one was superior to the other, but they were arguing over that as well. They participated in idle practices through meals and communal and community celebrations. They desecrated the Lord's Supper by getting drunk and neglecting the individuals who were there that were in need of a meal. They emphasized spiritual gifts, especially knowledge, prophecy, and tongues above every other spiritual truth and practice. They showed no evidence of love for one another, as Paul so articulately explained in chapter 13. And so as we come to chapter 14... And the most extensive treatment of tongues in all the New Testament, Paul is not helping a healthy church improve. He is rebuking a carnal church for emphasizing the wrong thing and of having a wrong understanding of this gift. To not understand that going into chapter 14 will totally change your conclusion as you finish reading through chapter 14. So a few things to remember as we move into chapter 14 go along the lines of this. Corinth, like most first century Roman cultures, was dominated by pagan worship, which for the Corinthian Christians and for us today would be idolatry. 
Now, as a part of this pagan worship, there was this mystery religion experience emphasize the individual's experience with gods or goddesses through a process called ecstasy. Do you remember hearing about this? All the way back in, I think, chapter chapter 9, when Paul was dealing with um, eating food sacrificed to idols and talking about idolatry and what, what idols were and were not. So ecstasy was believed to be a supernatural, sensuous communion with a deity. So through frenzied hypnotic chants and ceremonies, Worshippers experienced semi-conscious euphoric feelings of oneness with this god or goddess, and the result would be ecstatic utterances believed to mean that one was talking to the gods. Often the ceremony would be preceded by vigils and fastings, and at the conclusion of these ceremonies and these ecstatic experiences would sometimes divulge into drunkenness and sometimes even debauchery. So it is highly likely that for the Corinthians, this pre-Christian practice of ecstatic experience in the mystery religions has greatly influenced how they understood the gift of tongues and how they sought to practice it in the present. Now, if you had a Christian worship experience and then moved into a different Christian worship experience, you would probably bring with you some of those past experiences, some of those past expectations, and you would probably say, well, why aren't we doing this like I used to do over there? Well, that's kind of the idea. They were bringing with them into their Christianity these pre-Christian practices centered in the mystery religions. So they knew something about the gift of tongues as it was taught and as I would um, I would imagine um, the uh, verbal continuation of what took place on the day of Pentecost and afterwards. So the gift was incredibly important because possessing it indicated the highest form of spirituality and this was highly prized and sought after. So if you in your previous religious experience could quote-unquote commune with the gods, why would you not want to do that in your Christian experience? Wouldn't it be a great thing to commune with the gods? Well, you can do that through prayer, right? You can do that anytime you want. But for them, this, this experience of ecstasy was the highest form of spirituality, and that was the mark, and that, that is what it was they sought after. So this is the reason why Paul has gone to great lengths to emphasize the importance of love over all spiritual gifts, especially tongues, because love is the greatest mark of spirituality, not tongues or any of the other speaking gifts that they so highly prized. So another important thing to remember is that tongues was probably a temporary gift, as were the other sign gifts. The sign gifts are tongues, miracles, and healings, which were given to authenticate the gospel message and the earth in the early gospel messengers. So if you were coming into a community and claiming to speak for a God, they would expect you to be able to back that up somehow. And so this is why the sign gifts were given to the apostles so they could authenticate who they were as spokesmen for God and give some kind of backbone or some kind of authenticating practice to what it was that they purported to speak on behalf of this God. So once the revelation of God's word was completed... 
in AD 90-something by John with the book of Revelation, the need for the sign gifts expired. So God has never ceased to perform miracles, and He continues today to heal miraculously and to work in other supernatural ways according to His sovereign will. This is very interesting to me, and I didn't know this. Here's what I'm told. The Bible records only three periods in history, only three periods in history, in which human beings were given the gift of performing miracles. Now, all throughout the biblical revelation, God performs miracles, but only in three periods lasting around 70 years did God give that gift to human beings. So the first period was during the ministries of Moses and Joshua. Thinking back to the plagues on Israel, thinking about the conquest of the promised land, that transpired over about 70 years, and once the ministry of Moses and Joshua was completed, the miracles performed in the midst of the Israelites through human beings abruptly ended. The second period was through the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. And you remember the encounters they had with the false prophets of Baal and all the things that they asked God to do? Well, when their ministries ended... So did that period where humans were the instruments that God would perform these miracles. The third period was the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. Outside of these three periods, lasting around 70 years, the Bible records no experience where human beings were given the ability to to bring about miraculous signs as they spoke for God. Each lasted around 70 years, and at the end of this period, these miracles performed by human hands abruptly ended. Pretty interesting to think about, and I didn't know that before, but it makes a lot of sense. I know that I, I, I remember miracles being performed, and miracles being performed on behalf of the nation of Israel, but the period of Moses and Joshua and Elisha and Elijah and Jesus and the the apostles is unique to the biblical revelation. So to further cement the idea of the sign gifts being temporary, here are two important points to consider especially as it relates to tongues. Now, this is somewhat lengthy, but I think it's incredibly incredibly important as we understand this for ourselves and as we encounter others who are pursuing the sign gifts in in an unhealthy spiritual way. The first point to consider is this, the New Testament usage. The usage of tongues is mentioned only in the earlier New Testament books. Most New Testament books do not mention it. Paul mentions it only in this one letter. Paul is attributed to writing 13 letters in the New Testament, and it is only in this letter that Paul makes any mention of it at all. James, Peter, John, and Jude make no mention of tongues whatsoever. Nor does the reference to appear, of tongues appear in the book of Acts after Acts chapter 19, verse 6. Acts chapter 19 was written in the midst of Paul's third missionary journey, which is widely accepted to have taken place between 54 and 58 A.D. Nowhere in the New Testament is it commanded for believers as a responsibility or spiritual exercise to speak in tongues. 
So thinking about how the New Testament treats the subject in the vast number of, of books of the Bible that don't deal with it at all leads one to the conclusion that tongues, like the other sign gifts, were in fact temporary. Secondly, and this is much more lengthy, and it is the historical record. I'm going to read from you directly from John MacArthur, who has studied this to great in great depth and in great detail, has recorded what it is he's found in his research. So I'm going to read this as John MacArthur has written it for us. The gift of tongues is nowhere alluded to or found in any writings of the church fathers. Clement of Rome, you've heard that name, wrote a letter to the Corinthian church in the year 95, only about 40 years after Paul wrote his letter of 1 Corinthians. In discussing problems in the church at Corinth, Clement made no mention of tongues. Justin Martyr, another name you've undoubtedly heard of, the great church father of the second century, visited many of the churches of his day, yet in his voluminous writings, he mentions nothing of the gift of tongues. It is not mentioned even among his several lists of spiritual gifts. Origen, another name you've probably heard, was a brilliant church scholar who lived during the 3rd century, and he makes no mention of the gift of tongues. In his argument against Celsus, he explicitly argues that the sign gifts of the apostolic age were temporary and were not exercised by Christians of his day. Chrysostrum, I'm sure you've heard that name. Perhaps the greatest of the post-New Testament writers lived from 347 until 407. In writing on 1 Corinthians 12, the introduction, and probably one of the most prominent chapters on spiritual gifts, he states that tongues and the other miraculous sign gifts not only had ceased, but could not even be accurately defined. Augustine, in his comments on Acts 2.4, wrote, quote, In the earliest times the Holy Spirit fell on them that believed and they spoke with tongues. These were signs adapted to that time, for there behooved to be that betokening of the Holy Spirit. That thing was done for betokening, and it passed away. So the historians and theologians of the early church unanimously maintained that tongues ceased to exist after the time of the apostles. The only exception of which we know was within, was within the movement led by Montanus, a second century heretic who believed that divine revelation continued through him beyond the New Testament. Apparently, no other tongue-speaking was practiced in Christianity until the 17th and 18th centuries when it appeared in two Roman Catholic groups in Europe and among the Shakers in New England. So for over 1,800 years, the gift of tongues, along with other miracle gifts, was unknown in the life and doctrine of Orthodox Christianity. Then around the turn of the 20th century, tongues became a major emphasis within the holiness movement, a large section of which developed into modern Pentecostalism, which is known today as charismatics. Many charismatics defend as biblical 
the modern tongue speaking as part of the latter-day signs spoken of by Joel in chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, and quoted by Peter in a sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But if you do a thorough examination of Joel chapter 2, it is clear that the prophecy does not apply either to the day of Pentecost or to modern times today. From earlier in Joel 2, we see that the time referred to is the second coming of Christ, of which Pentecost was only a sample, when the Lord will remove the northern army far away from Israel, just before His kingdom is established, and God's chosen people turn to Him. It is only after this sign that the miraculous signs in the heavens and on the earth will appear, which again alludes to the second coming of Christ. On the day of Pentecost, there were no blood, columns of smoke, darkening of the sun, or changing of the moon to blood associated with Pentecost. Nor have any such things happened in modern times. Peter was not saying that Pentecost completely fulfilled Joel's prophecy, because obviously it has not. He was saying that the limited miraculous signs that had occurred shortly before he began his sermon were a glimpse of much greater and far-reaching signs and wonders that would come in the last days. So there's simply no biblical explanation in Joel for the modern reappearance of tongues or of any or any of excuse me or of any of the other miracle gifts. Some charismatics also maintain that the early and latter reign of Joel 2.23 referred to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and in modern times, respectively. But if you study Joel chapter 2, the early reign was the literal rainfall that came in the autumn, and the latter rain was that which came in the spring. Joel's point is this, that God will make crops grow profusely in the kingdom, as the following verses of 24 through 27 make abundantly clear. That is John MacArthur's historical recitation of how tongues went from the apostolic age to the modern charismatic movement that began in the 1960s. So the end result is this. In the New Testament, the gift of tongues is barely mentioned, and historically it only became an emphasis after the 1960s modern charismatic movement. Now that's important for a couple of reasons. One, it gives some stronger evidence to the temporary nature of the signed gifts, and Throughout the charismatic movement, some groups would say, well, if you don't speak in the gift of tongues, then you're not saved. And some have rejected that and say, well, no, 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 it's not that. If you don't speak in tongues, then you haven't received the full baptism of the Holy Spirit, and you're walking in a half-filled Christian experience. You're waiting for the full immersion, the full coming of the Holy Spirit in your life. And some would say, well, it's not necessarily that either. Some would say that you should pursue the gift of tongues and other miraculous sign gifts because then you will find the fullest measure of joy and power in your life as a Christian. But if you understand the sign gifts to be temporary in nature, you don't get bogged down and confused with those kinds of things that are evident in the charismatic movement. Now, by way of personal testimony, when I was saved, I went back to Lakeland, Florida. My 
the, the place where I lived, and I made some friends who were in the charismatic seminary, and they continued to push on me the idea of speaking in tongues. Have you prayed about it? Have you pursued it? Are you asking God to give you that gift? And I'm like, well, no. You know, should I do that? Yeah, I want to do that. I mean, that's what God wants. That's what I want to. That's what I want to do. So I would meet with them, and they would pray for me, and they would explain Scripture to me, basically on on select verses and passages out of Corinthians and a couple of places in Acts. And so I would go. I went to this one couple's house, and I I prayed with them, and they laid hands on me, and after about fifteen minutes, they said, are you hearing any unusual syllables? No, I'm not hearing anything at all. Okay, let's keep praying. So I kept praying and, you know, God give to me this gift. God speak to me. And they were praying in tongues and they were saying all kinds of manner of sounds and, and articulating things. And are you hearing anything yet? No, I'm not hearing anything yet. I said, wow. Okay, so uh, let's come back. Let's do this again next week. So I would come back and we do it again next week. And nothing ever happened. And I finally began to share this with some other people. And they said, well, yeah, you know, da 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 And I thought, oh, okay, well, I, I don't think I guess I want to do that anymore. It's very, very easy to have two, three verses or a small passage create an entire doctrine that cannot be substantiated by the entirety of Scripture. That's why I believe it's important that you and I understand this more thoroughly as we look at the gift of tongues and what Paul says about it here in 1 Corinthians 14. So as we attempt to understand tongues, as we go through this chapter, our understanding will be broken into two major sections, 1 through 25, and then 26 through 40. And based upon the time we have left, we're not going to get anywhere new, anywhere near through 1 through 25. So we're just going to go 1 through 5 today as an introduction and then do my very best to get through the rest of this second, this first section next week. So 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 5. Shake your hands. Shake your head. Get ready. Here we go. You ready? Here we go. Verse 1. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one speaks, excuse me, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edification. So we're going to be looking at Roman numeral 6 and our ongoing Investigation into spiritual gifts, and Roman numeral six is understanding tongues. <clears throat> so I've outlined this, and I've gone back and edited it, and I didn't change what you're going to see in your sermon notes, but it will change next week. So as we look at this idea of understanding tongues, number one, prophecy is superior. Now, you're going to see number two and number three all the way down to number five, but that'll change next week, but don't get hung up on that. Prophecy is superior. Verse one, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So as a connection to chapter 13, and all that that Paul has said about the supremacy of love and the characteristics of love and the eternality of love, Paul says again, pursue love. 
Paul commands them to pursue the more excellent way that he outlined in 1231 as the introduction to the qualities of love. So that word pursue means to hunt or to chase after. Paul says hunt and chase after love. So this Christian virtue of love is to be what Christians are to be most concerned about. That is to be the highest goal that we have. God, help me to know love. Help me to understand love. Help me to practice love. Because love is active. It is never passive. It always looks to the good of others. Not the promotion of self. Not what is only good for me. But what is good for others? I want to be a man of love. I want to be about doing the things that benefit other people, not just myself. Paul says that is the truest measure of spirituality. Going back to what he says in First in Corinthians uh, chapter thirteen, verses one: If I can speak with the tongues of men and don't have love, what, what am I? I'm a noisy girl. If I have all faith so as to move a mountain, but don't have love, I am nothing. If I have all prophecy, know all wisdom, but don't have love, I'm of no value. Paul says, pursue love. It is the truest measure of spirituality. Now, while that is true, Paul also says to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Earnestly desire, if you remember, is used both negatively and positively in Paul's writings. And here... Paul is using it in a positive sense. So he surfaced that they had a selfish, self-promotional, high-prioritized desire to have the, the, the showy gifts. Paul says the desire for gifts is not necessarily wrong, but the reason that they wanted these gifts, these highly prized gifts, was wrong. So previously Paul used earnestly desire negatively. Here, as the contrast, he uses it in a positive sense. They wanted the showy, attention-getting gifts, the visible gifts. Why? So others would admire them. Boy, that guy just listened to how he went off in church today. He must really know God. He must have gone on speaking in a language I've never heard before and no one understood. He must have gone on a good five or six minutes. Boy, he must have really been entranced with the person of God. Well, boy, that person who is teaching, he really knows this stuff. I want to be like him. I really admire him and respect him. That is why they wanted the showy gifts. Jesus identified that same character trait when he dealt with the Pharisees. And he said, you drop in piles of money and you make a clang in the plates so other people are going to look at you and go, wow, look how much money that guy's given. But what did Jesus say? That gift made, made no, no impression on God, but the widow who gave sacrificially those two little mites, she was the one who was truly blessed by God. So it's the same kind of character trait that Jesus identified in the Pharisees that Paul is identifying here in the Corinthian church. They wrongly wanted these prior, these highly prized gifts so others would admire them. While they cared little for others, they cared a lot about how others admired them so they earnestly desired 
these gifts, but for the absolutely wrong reasons. So Paul says, pursue love, but desire prophecy. Again, desire is this strong urgency. It is this interest in. Two things to remember about prophecy as we look at this. Number one, in the New Testament times, prophecy was a two-sided coin. It was revelatory. And the fact that the apostles were teaching and speaking what God had inspired them directly from Himself, that which was not yet known, and it was a revelatory inspiration where they were explaining who Jesus was and how it was that He fulfilled the person of the Messiah and what His coming and a sacrificial death actually meant. So in this sense, prophecy is revelatory, and that is not the sense in which Paul is is, is encouraging them to desire the gift of prophecy. Secondly, prophecy is understood to be a teaching gift. It is one where, speaks or t- where one speaks or teaches the revealed Word of God to other people. So while this gift is highly likely to be public, it doesn't have to be public in that before a large group of people sense. Authors, small group Bible study teachers, and others would have this gift and even those without this particular gift can still be somewhat effective in presenting the revealed truth of God to others who do not know what God's truth is. Have you ever heard people talk in truisms? They say things that are kind of true, but they're not thoroughly true. But what we need is the truth of God's Word to fill out what is a truism so that it is actually truthful as God's Word says it is. Most of us can do that without possessing the particular gift of prophecy. So in that sense, I believe Paul is saying, pursue prophecy so that you can teach others about the real truth of God's Word, not a truth that is mixed with worldly philosophy and worldly wisdom and other things, which make it inconsistent with who God is and what God has said. So this is Paul's primary goal and priority for the church, that the gift of prophecy would be primary over the other gifts in their lives because prophecy can accomplish what tongues cannot. And that is specifically community edification. Now Paul will go on to talk about that as an introductory remark here, and then he will expand upon it as we continue through chapter 14. So the second thing that Paul says here is that tongues is individual. When speaking in a tongue, the speaker is, letter A, talking to God. Verse 2a, For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to to God. Now, Paul is going to develop this more fully exactly what he means a little bit later in this chapter, but a couple of things to note here. The first thing that Paul says is he is, the first thing that Paul does is he is contrasting the superior gift of prophecy against the gift of tongues. So instead of speaking to a group of people who are assembled for church, one who speaks in tongues is only speaking to God. No one can understand it. And an uninterpreted tongue, as compared to prophecy, which everyone can understand, benefits the assembly in no way. 
tongues is limited to something that only God can understand. So if you claim to speak in a tongue, and if you go off in church in some kind of a public utterance, and you can't interpret it, and no one around you can interpret it, only God understands it. But if you stand before a group of people and you articulate the truth of God's Word, everybody can understand that and everybody can benefit from that. So one who would speak in a tongue would benefit the the assembly in no way. It has no value for the group that is gathered. Now secondly, some believe that the reference here, speaking to God, speaking to God, is an allusion to the ecstatic utterance phenomenon of the mystery religions that the Corinthians were familiar with and seeking to emulate in their church experience. So remember, the ecstatic experience was believed to be able to make one of them able to commune with a God. So speaking in an unknown language was speaking in the language of the gods, and these were not real gods, but they were in fact idols created by man. So if this is what Paul really means, this allusion to the ecstatic utterance of the mystery religions, he's not affirming their usage of tongues as much as he is showing them why prophecy is in fact superior, as he will again mention in verse 4. So again, if if speaking in tongues is a part of the ecstatic experience, then whatever it is you're saying is not really is not really being spoken to God, capital G, but to little God G, who is in fact an idol. So the one speaking in tongues, the second thing that Paul would say here, letter B, this individual is speaking in mysteries, and that's exactly what it says here in the second part of verse 2. For no one understands, but in his spirit... He speaks mystery. So when one speaks in a tongue, no one understands what is being said, not even the one who is speaking. So you'll notice here that the word spirit in your Bible is not capitalized, and that is because translators across virtually every modern translation understand that the spirit being referenced here is not the Holy Spirit, but it is His spirit, man's spirit, the spirit inside of us. It's our inward spirit. It is something that someone is speaking in himself, of himself, and to himself. Which gives some merit to the idea that Paul is referencing speaking to a little g God, not to a capital G God. So in himself, to himself, he is speaking mysteries which even he does not understand. So this is very clearly an allusion to the ecstatic utterance phenomenon of the mystery religions where one communed with the gods and was able to speak to them in some mysterious language, some kind of mysterious truth that no one can even know what that truth is. So as a contrast to this, as a contrast to the speaker talking to God and speaking in mysteries, Mysteries, Paul says here in verse 3, number 3, prophecy edifies. Verse 3, but one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. So in the Corinthian experience, tongues speaks to God in mysteries, but the one who prophesies 
speaks to men for edification, so that men can be built up spiritually. He speaks to them in exhortation, providing spiritual encouragement. He speaks to them with consolation for spiritual comfort through difficult times. So when you assemble together together for church, which would be more meaningful to you? Would it be more meaningful you to you to hear someone speak in an unknown language that you can't interpret or understand? Or would it be more meaningful to you to have someone come in and teach God's Word for edification, for exhortation, and for consolation? Which would you prefer? Think about this. This is a great example of this. Did you know that before 1972, all mass in the Catholic Church in the United States, and I think probably worldwide, took place in Latin? So unless you knew Latin, you could go to the Mass and you had no idea what the priest was saying. Well, I guess what he's saying is good. I guess what he's saying is right. I I guess it's good for me to be here, but I have no idea what he's talking about. I don't have a clue. So it wasn't until after Mass was translated into English that those who attend a Catholic church began to understand and recognize what was actually being said. So in a similar way, if you go to church and someone is speaking in a tongue or in a language you can't understand, it does you absolutely no good at all. But as a contrast to that, prophecy edifies. It does us good to hear, to hear others speak and teach the revealed truth of God's Word. So it's obvious why Paul prefers they seek after the gift of prophecy instead of tongues. Why? Because prophecy benefits the entire assembly. And as a contrast, tongues is only for self. Verse 4. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Again, highlighting the contrast. Tongues will only edify self, whereas prophecy edifies the entire assembly. This is the reason why Paul so strongly instructs they pursue prophecy, not tongues. As we think about how Paul has rebuked the Corinthian church throughout the entirety of this letter with their carnal lifestyle and their unhealthy preoccupation with the showy gifts, some think this self-edification here is in fact sarcasm being thrown at them to identify that you're really only pursuing a pre-Christian, idolatrous experience entrenched in the mystery religions, and you really don't understand that all you're really interested in is just showing out, having people admire you, have people taking notice of you. So in a sense, Paul could be saying you're more preoccupied with self-edification than you are spiritually impacting the church through the teaching gift of prophecy. Now, we've seen this sarcasm before where Paul has dealt with their self-proclaimed knowledge and wisdom all the way back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 in that very, very lengthy section about the contrast between worldly wisdom and God's wisdom. So Paul says, excuse me, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 4 verses 8 through 10. 
You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. Now, if that's not dripping with sarcasm, I don't know what is. Paul says, for, for I think God has, excuse me, God has exhibited us apostles, least last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both the angel and the men's. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. Paul is very clearly being sarcastic in their self-proclaimed wisdom and knowledge as it contrasted with the true wisdom and knowledge that came from God Himself as revealed through the authoritative teaching of the apostles. So tongues in the form of the Corinthian could never ever edify the church. It would only edify the individual and this self-edification would be for all the wrong reasons. Not spiritual edification, but personal, look at how spiritual I am, self-edification. And with tongues, in the most pure and accurate form, it must be interpreted if it's going to have any value for the assembly. Now again, this is being introduced here, and it's going to be expanded upon as we continue through this chapter. Now lastly, number five... Prophecy is greater. So this verse serves as a summary to verses 1 through 4, which is an introduction to the entirety of chapter 14, and Paul's proof as to why prophecy is superior. So verse 5, Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues. Now this is a proof verse here, but we'll come back to that. But even more that you would prophesy, and greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. Now again, this verse must be understood in context. In context, Paul has already established that not everyone is going to have the same gifts and not everyone is going to have all of the gifts. As you remember back in 1 Corinthians 12.30, all do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? they? Those were rhetorical questions where the expected answer was no. He's already established that God gives gifts sovereignly as He chooses in 1 Corinthians 12.11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. So when Paul says that he desires that they all speak in tongues, what on earth can Paul simply mean? Can he be contradicting himself? Contradicting himself? Absolutely not, because there is no contradiction in God's Word. So what is it that Paul is saying? Paul was simply making it clear that he did not denounce the genuine gift of tongues or its usage. In other words, Paul could be saying, if the Holy Spirit chooses to endow every one of you with the gift of tongues, that would be perfectly fine with me. But Paul's preference is that the Spirit would endow them with the gift of prophecy. While tongues is fine, Paul desires, in the latter part of verse 2, even more 
that you would prophesy. And his reasoning is clear. Excuse me, 5b. Prophecy, excuse me, greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. So a believer with the genuine gift of tongues was never to exercise it unless he interprets it. Either the tongues speaker himself or another person was always to interpret so that the church may receive edification. And Paul will outline this later in the verse, excuse me, later in the chapter, all the way down in verse 28. So any private self-building expression could not be the genuine gift because the purpose of tongues is only realized when it is exercised and interpreted publicly so that the whole assembly may be built up. Now, Paul will go on to say that the gift of tongues is for the unbeliever, and that links us back to Acts chapter 2, and those who heard the miracles and the greatness of God being uttered in a language that is our own, that these people have never heard or studied before, and I'm hearing myself God speak to me in my own native language. That's part of what Paul is building a case for much later in chapter 14. With prophecy, edification is assured. With tongues, edification is for the individual. And that kind of edification is rooted in selfishness. And where legitimate tongues is being utilized is for the benefit of unbelievers. And in order for that to happen, it has to be interpreted. So Paul isn't giving clear teaching about the gift of tongues. Paul is showing how unbiblically they are practicing tongues. And he's building a case for them to stop using tongues unless it can be interpreted by someone. And if it can't be interpreted, it can't be uttered uttered as a part of the public assembly. Now as we go through the chapter as we go through chapter 14, we're going to see the chaos that was a part of the assembly, of the gathering of people together, and in the context of how Paul is putting an end to the usage of tongues, we'll see why the chaos was taking place. So imagine, if you will, if we were a church that believed in the gift of tongues and that every individual who thought they possessed the gift of tongues were free to use it at any point in the service. Imagine what that would be like. Well, anybody who thought they had that gift would pop up at any time and they would start talking in a language that no one could understand and no one could interpret. And the next person might say, well, gee, that was pretty good. I bet I can do better. And they would pop up and they would start going off and then you have a competition. And so there's a big part of why Paul was dealing with this that we're going to see later on in the chapter. Now, I remember as a young Christian not knowing anything about the Bible and seeing all of these talented and all of these gifted people around me, I wanted nothing more than to be of spiritual value and usage to the Lord. That was really all I wanted. But I wish I could talk like Him. I wish I knew what He knew, could teach like Him. And there's people saying, well, I wish I could sing like that. There's so many things I would like to be able to do. And you know what God revealed to me through His Word is that the greatest gift that God has given to me is not what I can do for Him, but the greatest gift God has given to me 
is the gift of salvation. It is making me into a new creature who will be with Him forever. And I think that when we come to terms with that being the greatest gift, the idea of loving others as a truest mark of spirituality, regardless of any spiritual gift I may or may not possess, boy, it makes a big difference, doesn't it? You may not be able to preach with great authority. You may not be able to teach in such a way that hundreds are coming to know Christ, but what you can do is you can love people in such a way that they see God for who He really is and not what I thought He was in my corrupted sinful nature. God has given each of us the greatest gift of all, and that is a new heart. Let's uh, pray together. Father, we are